Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After nearly seven years hosting, today is my last day on Where We Live as I take on a new role at Connecticut Public as Vice President of Community Engagement. Now, before I sign off, we bring back the voices of some guests whose backgrounds and stories have stayed with me. Coming up, Norwich woman Tamara Lanier updates us on her journey suing Harvard University over its ownership of photographs that Lanier says are of her enslaved ancestors. Plus, senior producer Tess Terrible turns the tables and interviews me about our time working on Connecticut Public's flagship talk show. Listeners and lovers of where we live, we want to hear from you, too. What episodes or moments stood out to you? What prompted you to call in and share? Our number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, hosting a live show five days a week creates quite an archive, and some guests return to our air more than once, like state historian emeritus Walt Woodward. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Walt is a Connecticut treasure. Walt Woodward, it's so great to have you back for my last show. Good morning, Lucy. Happy graduation. (laughs) Thank you. Now, I was thinking back to all the times you've been on the show, and I've learned so much from you, Walt. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of those conversations that we've had and what stood out to you. You know, we've had some wonderful talks over the years, and I, too, have learned much from you. Of, Of all the times we've been together, the one that I think stands out most to me is is one day we met at the entrance to the North Cemetery in Hartford, and you and I walked and talked about Frederick Law Olmsted, who was uh, probably the greatest landscape architect in American history. He was a Hartford native, and his views about nature were shaped in Hartford. And we walked through the cemetery, talked about the history of this 19th century uh, Hartford City of the Dead that sort of reflected the changes in America in the 19th century. We walked down a lane to the Olmsted family tomb, and we talked about the members there and how the tomb reflected Olmsted's view that nature could be restorative and that it had its own kind of picturesque and sublime qualities. And then we walked around behind the tomb, and we found we found there a you know very nicely laid out carefully organized bedroll and some of the possessions of a person who had uh clearly set up you know a sleeping place a shelter for themselves behind the Olmstead tomb and it was it was truly startling to me because it kind of profoundly reflected uh, uh the, the some of the differences between 
the greatness of 19th century Hartford and the challenges of Hartford in the 21st century. And there was a uh, both a, a, a kind of profound irony and uh, moving quality mm -hmm. that this person would knowingly or not set up their sleeping quarters next to the tomb of Frederick Law Olmsted, who believed that the presence of nature was itself restorative. Mm -hmm. I will never forget that moment or that conversation. Yeah, I remember that day, and you were so gracious when uh, Carmen Baskoff, who produced that show, called you up and said, you know, Lucy wants to know, can you meet us at the Old North Cemetery? And you said, sure. <laughs> it <laughs> but... <laughs> was great. It, it, a walking and talking interview. It was fun. Right. You've been a fun guest, of course, over the years. You bring such an energy uh, to the air uh, waves when you're sharing history with us. And I, I remember that hour we did, and it was during the pandemic. I think it was the first time that you and I talked on Zoom. And then, you know, it wasn't the last time, but it was about your book, Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. And we've got to talk about one of the things you included in that book, which was the election cake, which we brought up that day. Did we start a trend, Walt? Well, actually, I don't know if we started a trend, but there is a trend. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> you know, the election cake is a Connecticut tradition that goes all the way back to the Puritan era. The the Connecticut's Puritans didn't believe in the kinds of holidays we believe in. They didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't, you know, they they, they felt that those were invented traditions, all of the church holidays and religious holidays. But there was one thing they realized was important. Connecticut had received a charter in 1662 that gave it virtual independence almost a century before the American Revolution. So Connecticut, even by the 1750s, had a long tradition of independently electing its own rulers. And the uh, the Puritans found that this idea that they could select the people who governed them, that was something worth celebrating. And what better way to celebrate than with cake? And on Election Day, which took place in early May, all the stops came out. People rode in with the newly elected governor. Uh, there were parades there, but there there were all kinds of celebrations, a sermon at the church. But the most important part of the event was a special recipe cake called the Connecticut election cake that was served. Uh, the recipes called for, you know, like 30 quarts of flour, 10 pounds of butter. They were made in huge batches and served to all comers. This tradition of associating the sweetness of cake with sweet democracy became in deeply ingrained in Connecticut's election traditions. And as Connecticut's moved west across America, they took the election cake tradition with them. In recipe books all across America, you can find people who did, uh, who, who made election cakes during their elections in states from here to Oregon. And uh, though it faded in the 20th century, as I think people, more women moved into the workplace and our lives transformed, I, I think recent, very divisive politics in America have caused some people to think, let's bring that tradition back. And I'm happy to say that tomorrow, uh, the members of my band of Steady Habits and I are going to be playing some old campaign election songs, 
at the Connecticut Old State House in Hartford's third annual election cake contest. And they are taking entries from uh, bakers all around Connecticut, and they're bringing them in, and they're going to select the winner of this year's election cake contest. So hopefully we've got a tradition that's coming back. Well, you are a man of many talents. I hear you also make a pretty good election cake, uh, Walt. And thank you for letting our listeners know about uh, that tradition and that we, where you will be uh, uh, the next uh, before we have our next election day. We're, we're four days out. We definitely need more cake uh, these days, Walt. Oh, uh, we need more sweetness. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, I want to take a quick call now. Uh, Kathy's calling in. Uh, it's the last show, Kathy. I have to say, this is Kathy Flaherty. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. (laughs) I can't believe it's your last show. Um, I've so so enjoyed listening over the years, and I think it's really funny that you were talking to the historian about the cake because I actually emailed him to get the recipe for the cake. Have we made it yet? No, we have not. (laughs) Uh, But but the plan is... I do thank you for bringing attention to a lot of issues that don't always get attention and, you know, getting the people who are most impacted by the problems on the air with you. Thank you. And I remember, Kathy, when I, I took over the show in 2016, you were one of the first people that emailed me uh, to welcome me to uh, this show and to offer uh, your perspective as well, uh, the work that you've done in our state uh, with uh, legal rights and uh, thinking about the disabled community. Thank you so much, Kathy, uh, for that email, that welcome, and for your engagement through the years. You're most welcome. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so many of you have called in over the years, and I'd love to hear from you about that moment that you decided to to call in and share. It's not easy to do, and uh, we appreciate the trust that you have given us over the years. Again, our number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Walt Woodward, I wanted to go back to you for those who listen to Connecticut Public pretty regularly, they hear the Today in History minutes. Uh, So you got to tell us what happened on November 4th. (laughs) Well, this is great. 391 years ago today, John Winthrop Jr. arrived in America. And he he was so instrumental in early Connecticut history, in addition to founding Saybrook and the town of New London. He was unusual among the Puritans in that he Connecticut was uh, New England's fiercest prosecutor of witches in the early 17th century. Winthrop became involved in the 1650s and actually engineered a reinterpretation of the law. It took him 15 years to do it, but his intervention assured that under his watch, no person was executed in witchcraft ever again in Connecticut. And this took place almost a half century before the witch hunt at Salem. He also was uh, a person who, when Connecticut said the uh, after the Pequot War that the Pequots should be disbanded, a kind of form of cultural genocide, the Pequot people should be disbanded as a tribe, combatants cast into servitude, uh, and the tribe and the language never spoken again. He fought fiercely for almost a generation to help the Pequots stay together as a people and to uh, continue their tribal identity. A, a very unusual and very important Connecticut. Now, it sounds like he's a superhero, 
But I have to at the same time say that Winthrop, like many people of his status and time, uh, was an enslaver. He he had one, you know, at least one, probably several enslaved people. And it's, you know, it's a reflection of the complexities of the mm, time. That's right. He was great at some things, problematic in others. We're short on time, Walt. I, I introduced you as Connecticut State Historian Emeritus. We did have you back recently to talk about the search for the new state historian. Can you briefly tell us who that is? I'm so excited. His name is Andy Horowitz. He comes to us from Tulane University, where he was the Paul and Deborah Gibbons Professor of History in the School of Liberal Arts. He's a New Haven native. Uh, his his uh, first book was A History of Katrina. It won one of the most important prizes in American history. He's a remarkable scholar, but he's also a public historian, founding director of the New Haven Oral History Project. Uh, and he also was a research associate at uh, National Public Radio's American Roots. So he's he's most of all, he's really a very nice human being and a remarkable scholar. I think I couldn't pick, uh, uh, you know, a better successor. And I look forward to many years of watching Andy uh, uh, promote our state's history as I've tried to do in my time in the mm -hmm. job. Well, Walt Woodward, again, a pleasure to hear your voice on our airwaves. Thank you so much again for all the time you've given where we live uh, over the years. And let's keep in touch. Lucy, you're graduating with high honors, and let's do. Thank you so much. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, seven years hosting and so many guests. A few years ago, I invited Wajiku Gatheru from Pomfret, Connecticut, to our studio. She's a Kenyan-American, a young woman who was Yukon's first Rhodes Scholar. She is a person to watch. Today, she's the founder of Black Girl Environmentalist. Here's what she shared with Where We Live in early 2020 about why she's a climate activist. The environmental field is overwhelmingly white. Um, and I find that, um, as I said, I, I feel like I've had a really interesting um, life in which I've been uniquely positioned to find comfort and discomfort. And one of the things that drives me to remain in this field and to be a leader in the environmental field and um, really push the environmental movement forward to really begin to solve some of our most pressing issues is the fact that I want to see more people of color in this field. And um, it, I I've, I've experienced being the only person of color, the only black person in most of my environmental classes, if not all of them, and doing the work that I do in the state and even outside of the state. This summer I was in Seattle and so one of the only people of color in that space. And, you know, that when I think of that, that context of the environmental field and then the additional layer of the fact that people of color at the forefront of environmental justice, that tells me that I have a place because every time I walk into, into a space and I'm the only person of color, that tells me that I can help really challenge this movement to really be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. Listeners and lovers of where we live, we want to hear from you. What episodes or moments stood out to you? What prompted you to call in and share? That number again, 888-720-9677. Back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Before the break, I talked about the guests whose names and stories I'll never forget. People like Ted Hakey Jr. and Zahir Manan. They became friends after a crime of hate, a crime Hakey committed and pled guilty to in 2015 after shooting at Manan's mosque in Meriden, the Ahmadiyya Baitul Aman Mosque. They came into our studio in 2016 to share the first time they met in person and what happened after. As soon as Ted walked in, you could see remorse on his face. His cheeks were red. He was tearing a little bit. You know, this big guy that is a true Marine, you know, and looks like a wrestler. Um, he's remorseful. You know, he could have came in with his head high and, um, you know, uh, proud about what he did. But it was the exact opposite. Mm. Ted, uh, Zahir says that you seemed emotional when you walked into that room. What did you say to them? I, I apologize. And it was... The, it was a lot of tension in the room, and you know, I didn't really know what to expect. And then I went in, and, and they were sitting in there. You know, Zaire was there, his wife, Dr. Kreshi, and, and it was, I was, didn't really know what to, what to do. And I just you know, spoke from the heart, apologized. And I knew that they were there to accept the apology, but I didn't think it was going to be sincere. And they knew I was there to apologize, but they didn't think I was going to be sincere. And I think it was the sincerity of everybody is what was so emotional about the the meeting. I mean, even even some of the FBI people had teary eyes in there, and it was it was pretty powerful. You went on to serve. I think it was last August when you went into federal prison. Yes. So six months in in federal prison. Yes. Your friendship didn't end. Is that, is that here, did you visit? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I try to visit um, every other week. I think I got to visit like six or or quite a few times, or seven times. You know, I wanted to invest time. I mean, you know, I had to make a sacrifice as well. But, the, you know, this connection is sincere. It's real. And also because, like Ted is saying, many people were asking that or, you know, throwing that out there that, oh, you only ask for forgiveness because you're scared of prison or and they only forgave you because they want to look good to people and things like that. But in reality, people don't see what's happening in the background. They don't see what's happening, all the investment, all, all the time that you put in there. And Ted became more than a brother to me because not only did he come and apologize to our mosque shortly after we met him the first time, and that's where that picture of us hugging went viral, but he also prayed with me, and he didn't have to. He even has an injury, and he still prayed with me. And I said, you know, you don't have to. You could sit there and watch. He goes, no, I want to join you in prayer. So when he bowed his head in, in, in humility and uh, humbleness right next to mine, I felt like he was a brother. 
I felt that it was my bro- brotherly duty to go and meet him, to give him that support, and you know, also to put myself in his position. You sometimes you have to put yourself in other people's shoes to realize their suffering and what they're going through, and to show that moral support. Ted and Zahir are still friends today. I wanted to take a quick call. Christy Koval is calling in from Middletown. Christy, it's good to hear your voice. Oh, it's wonderful to hear your voice, and thank you. New chapter for you. Exciting. (laughs) Well, thank you over the years for your support. I still remember uh, the show that you pitched us uh, many years ago about what it was like to be a young widow. That was a powerful hour, and so I wanted to thank you uh, for that time you spent with us. I absolutely do. I wanted to thank you both in a dual role today, you know, with my work at the Alzheimer's Association, but also, um, you know, for particularly that show for young widows. And then I know a couple of years later, we did a a show on navigating the holidays while grieving. And I just really want to take the time to thank you for all you you did to showcase such important issues for that people are facing. Well, I appreciate that. And it's been great to to know you. And I I look forward to, again, uh, connecting in this new role that I'll have here. I I am, too. I am, too. And and all the best to you. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you to your team. And uh, looking forward to collaboration. Thanks, Christy. I wanted to bring on our next guest, uh, who lives in Norwich. Tamara Lanier says she's a descendant of two enslaved people, Renty and his daughter, Delia. They were photographed in 1850 for Harvard professor Louis Agassiz as part of his research to advance the racist theory that Africans had different origins from Europeans. Lanier sued Harvard for wrongful seizure, possession, expropriation of those photographs and wanted them for her family. She came on the show in February 2020. One year later, a Massachusetts Superior Court judge dismissed Lanier's lawsuit against Harvard and Lanier's attorneys appealed this summer. The Massachusetts Supreme Court weighed in. Joining us again on Zoom is Tamara Lanier. Welcome back to the show, Tamara. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Tell our listeners what happened this summer at the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Well, I first want to say, you know, my gratitude to you for firstly your interest and excitement about your new venture and that you will certainly be missed on, on this platform. But in regards to the decision in June, It was a split decision, at least that's what I'm calling it. The court first ruled, Harvard had filed a motion to dismiss. The court ruled that we had a right to our day in court. And the court also gave us permission to expand the complaint, including reckless infliction of emotional distress, negligent infliction of emotional distress, an extreme and outrageous infliction of emotional distress. These were things that we hadn't originally asked for. And so last week, our attorneys filed this new complaint. So currently this new complaint as recommended by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has been filed in the lower court. Mm -hmm. And the, the decision was a stinging indictment of Harvard. Um, You can find the decision online if any of your listeners are interested. Again, it is a rebuke of Harvard. Uh, It was a 91-page decision where there was not one line in that decision that Harvard could point to as favorable favorable to them. What did your attorney say with how significant this decision was, Tamara? 
my attorneys were over the moon excited about the historicness of this decision. Firstly, you know, the one thing that they kept saying is this has never happened before. And what the attorney specifically talked about is that we are going to be in, in a Massachusetts court petitioning for redress for my enslaved ancestors, which has never happened before. This is a reparations lawsuit. And historically, uh, no other time in the history of this country has a reparations lawsuit made it past the front door. Many of the most of them, all of them, for the most part, have been dismissed for lack of standing. And my case is unique in that I not only have standing, uh, but I can prove that there is a, a relationship between my enslaved ancestors and priceless cultural property. And so it's, it's historic. It has never happened before. And given the nature of the history of slavery and, and, and the laws that haven't devolved in regards to slavery, it's very likely that a case like this will never happen again. I remember that day that you came into our studio to tell us your story, Tamara, uh, the, the pictures that you brought of, of your family and that photograph, that daguerreotype of Papa Renti. And I just wanted to let our listeners know, uh, through your research, uh, Papa Renti is your great, great, great grandfather. This was one of the enslaved people that this, uh, this now disgraced uh, uh, professor and scientist uh, took a, a photograph of in 1850. How have people responded to your story? Because a lot of people know about it now. I mean, your story has been taken around the world now. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and for the most part, overwhelming support. Um, many people have reached out, what can I do to help? Um, specifically, the descendants of the Harvard scientists, the Agassiz family, uh, have been supportive in a way that I can begin to describe. I mean, writing letters, um, coming with traveling with me to events uh they they have been the agassiz family has been amazing and initially i was concerned because i originally thought you know that these are agassiz descendants and his way of thinking was so twisted and so so dark and so sinister that his children may think like him and i was actually reluctant to meet with them and when I did actually meet with them, I found them to be the complete opposite of everything Lewis Eggersy stood for. Mm. Uh, when we think about your story also and how important it was for your mother, I remember you shared that with me, uh, Tamara, uh, to keep your family's story going and the importance of genealogical research. But that can be very difficult for Black Americans. Can you, can you briefly share about that? Yes, um, because of slavery, because uh, enslaved people were not documented, their births weren't recorded, their deaths weren't recorded, they were buried without markers. Um, there are very little records that you can go through, go to and, 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 and research. Uh, and that coupled with the Civil War and the destruction of the South, what did exist was destroyed in the Civil War. So for most Black Americans doing the genealogical research, you can only go back maybe as far as the 1870s before you hit what the genealogical researchers refer to as the brick wall. 
But my benefit and where I was fortunate, I had an oral history, a strong, uh, rich oral history that was detailed and that was accurate. And I often marvel at that because my mother never saw these census documents, these death records and cemetery records. But going back and measuring that with what she shared, it was almost as if she was reading from these documents. That's how accurate our oral history is. And it's amazing. So the one thing that I often talk about when I share this story is the value of oral history and the strength of oral history. And it's important if you have that elder in the household to talk to them, to find out what they know about your oral history and to document it. I wanted to take a quick call now. Uh, again, you're hearing with us uh, Norwich resident Tamara Lanier uh, updating us on her challenge uh, suing Harvard University for its possession of these photographs from 1850. Tamara Lanier says her research shows they are photographs of her enslaved ancestors, Papa Renti and Delia. Aaliyah is calling in from East Hartford. Hi, Aaliyah. Hi, Lucy. So good to hear you. And um, this is a great topic. And you've not only been a friend in my head, but a friend on the radio and bringing these insightful stories to our community that are important and that we don't get to hear um, and a lot of media out there. So I'm just grateful for you. I'm going to miss you, but I'm excited for your next journey. And um, I look forward to hearing where, where we live goes and to continuing to bring these stories to our communities because they're so important. And thank you so much. Well, thank you, Leah. I know you have engaged with us as well uh, over uh, the years. Uh, we have a brand new studio on the fifth floor here at Connecticut Public, and it was really important for me as we designed that studio, thinking about the voices, the people we've had on our air, but the people who are listening in our community. And Leah, you're one of those faces on that wall. So thank you so much uh, for again engaging with us and listening. Uh, I want to take one more call. Uh, Liz in Middletown. Liz, are you there? I am. How are you, Lucy? I'm doing well. What did you want to share? I wanted to thank you for all the years that you've done this, and I truly appreciate working in the arts myself. I'm a costume designer for theater, that you made a specific effort to focus some of your shows on the arts and keep us in the conversation for the 18 months that none of us worked. Mm -hmm. And I know I speak particularly for Ivertown Playhouse and Jackie when I say thanks for making that effort. Well, thank you, Liz. And I remember your calls over the years as well, and your contributions are are greatly appreciated. Uh, Thank you uh, for calling in. Um, Tamara, you're still with us. Uh, So the challenge uh, against Harvard continues, and you are feeling optimistic that one day Papa Renti and Delia those photographs will be in the possession of you and your family? Yes, I am. Um, The court has ruled um, in their decision, they did leave the daguerreotypes with Harvard, but they also were very clear in how Harvard is to engage with me. And one of the things that I ultimately hope to see is that the daguerreotypes are moved to a location, to a space where I feel like it preserves and, 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 and protects their dignity and humanity. I don't believe that that could happen at Harvard's Peabody Museum. I, I, my hope is an Afro-American museum. There's one coming up in South Carolina. There's one in DC, but I, I would love to see them in an institution that is uh, that does celebrate the diversity of, of people of color. And uh, that would sh- 
again, give them the dignity and respect that they're deserving of. Mm -hmm. Well, Tamara Lanier, good luck to you. Thank you so much again for sharing our story with you, for elevating this uh, story to so many. It means a lot, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, senior producer Tess Terrible wanted to interview me after seven years of hosting this show. It was a reminder to me it is hard to be the interviewee. So thank you again to so many of you who agreed to be my guest on this show over the years. Our conversation after a short break. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible, senior producer on Where We Live. After nearly seven years of hosting Where We Live, today is Lucy's last day on our flagship talk show. I've been working with Lucy for just under three years, and today comes with a lot of emotions. She's not going anywhere. She has been named Connecticut Public's new vice president of community engagement. Lucy will lead strategies to deeply connect and build collaborations with community-focused organizations across our state. Lucy has been the executive producer and host of Connecticut Public's morning talk show and podcast, Where We Live, for nearly seven years. Under her leadership, Where We Live went beyond the news headlines and interviews with policymakers to feature more conversations about Connecticut and the stories of its residents. For her final segment, we're flipping the script to talk to her about her time with Where We Live. 
Lucy, welcome to your show. <laughs> <laughs> this is really weird, you know, when I'm the, the tables have been turned and you're interviewing me. Mm-hmm. How does it feel? <laughs> it feels, yeah, it's very weird that today is a, an emotional day for all of us, but we're here to celebrate your time on the show. And I want to, you know, start by asking, can you talk about your early days with where we live and what it was like to take on this talk show? Well, I remember being really excited and also nervous because I had been, for people who've been listening to WNPR, Connecticut Public, for a while, you know, I was a reporter. I came to the state as a reporter and assignment editor back in 2006. And so I had the opportunity to fill in host for my mentor, uh, John Dankosky, and he hosted this show. He created and hosted it for 10 years, and then he decided to try a different opportunity. And so when he asked me, of course, I was honored. And I was excited, but it was a lot to take on. Uh, when you think about a live show, having an hour, and really, when you're a reporter, you will often do interviews uh, that are much shorter on air. Oftentimes, they're not live. And so it was a completely different thing that I had to get used to. Uh, but I remember having a good team uh, back then. Uh, Lydia Brown was still producing and Tucker Ives was uh, producing. So uh, they helped me along and I had this great opportunity to maybe think about some of the stories I would have covered as a reporter and bringing those same people into this studio and talking with them and having that freedom, uh, that time uh, to really uh, hear about something uh, more in depth than I'd be able to do in a four minute public radio story. Can you talk about the process of finding your voice on on air and um, figuring out the type of stories you wanted to tell and the type of people you wanted to feature? Because as we said at the beginning, your your time on Where We Live has featured a lot of um, not just policymakers around the state, not just uh, leaders from the, around the state, but actual residents. And and that's what I think of when I think of Where We Live with right. Lucy Nalpathangel. Yeah. It was really important to me to, to center this show around the stories of our residents and also to take issues that matter to them. Because we get emails, we get tweets uh, where people are interested in a particular topic or suggest a particular show. And so we also have taken those on over the years. But going from a reporter to hosting a live talk show, when you're a reporter, you're trained you know, not to opine about particular issues. Uh, so as host, you're in a different position. And it did take me a while to feel comfortable you know, letting my opinions known on particular topics. And I feel like I you know, at, th- at this moment, you know, I still kind of keep certain things under wraps, Tess. What do you think? <laughs> you do. You keep some uh, some things, you know, closer to your chest. But there's also been a lot of moments, I think, on the show where I've really seen you have your heart on your sleeve. Right. When people called in, um, that was one of the, the greatest things about hosting this show is taking listener calls. And you know this um, from all of our meetings and the times that you've been producing when people trust us and are able uh, to feel comfortable enough to call in, and not always just to ask a question of our guests, but to share a little personal story about themselves. Some of those moments were really emotional. And so, you know, keeping it together in the host chair, that, that was a challenge. Talk a little bit more about that, because that is a unique part of this talk show, is the fact that we take listener calls. We, we live in the digital 
era, this next generation of um, listeners, they're not that uh, prone to getting on the phone and, and sharing their opinions that way. We get a lot of engagement on social, but we have decided very consciously as a team to keep listener calls as part of our talk show, which a lot of talk shows have kind of done away with. Why is it important? Why has it been important to you to keep that a part of where we live? Because I feel like there are people who maybe as a newsroom or as a company, we wouldn't be reaching, but they happen to tune in when they're driving uh, to work or they just happen to be in the car. Uh, we hear often that line- linear audience uh, is uh, you know, decreasing because uh, more people are listening uh, maybe to where we live as a podcast. Uh, but it's always interesting to me, uh, certain topics where people that you may not expect are going to call. Uh, we were doing a show. So uh, I think you'll remember this when you came on, Tess, about um, the importance of community colleges and technical programs. And the phones just lit up. And we heard from people uh, who worked as electricians talking about what was valuable to them and why there needs to be more emphasis on training in these programs. And would that have been something uh, that uh, you know a particular news reporter would have covered at the time? Probably not, but we were talking about it, and we were able to hear from from residents too. And to me, that was you know just one example of how people respond uh, when uh, we open our our lines at nine o'clock. Yeah, we we've gotten a few of our our ideas for show for shows through our listeners, and that's been really amazing to see that have those listeners driving the topics that we cover here on where we live and how we shape our conversations. Yeah, I remember uh, during the pandemic, early on, we were we heard from a woman who operated a child care center, and you know, so many of them were struggling to remain open, and she reached out to us. When we were alive, uh, talking with one of our call screeners, we ended up doing a show on that, and we returned to that topic uh, time and time again because it's important. Uh, people uh, need help uh, with uh, affording child care, but child care providers in our state need more resources to help them, especially in the pandemic. We knew how challenging it was. Throughout this hour, we've talked about and we've heard some of our favorite conversations from where we live. And um, we've uh, heard from some listeners about their favorite conversations that have kind of stayed with them and have touched their hearts. What are some of your conversations that have kind of stayed with you and um, really uh, impacted you personally? Uh, so that's a hard one. I don't know if I can actually say, um, you know, there are definitely people that, that I remember, stories uh, that were powerful, uh, but uh, it's hard to pick the, the favorites. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, I did remember. Remember the time uh, when Carmen Baskov was producing and, and she's now working on a, a master's degree in Europe, uh, traveling around. And hi, Carmen. <laughs> I used to, hi, Carmen. I used to love all of the wildlife biology shows that mm-hmm. we, we did. And we were talking about coyotes one day. And so we're like, let's, let's do a show about coyotes. And the phones, remember that day? Like there were so many people calling in. <laughs> so many people calling in to talk about coyotes mm-hmm. in their backyards. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought it was really interesting. Like some of the topics you wouldn't think people are tuned into, those are the ones that they're, they get excited about. 
Yeah. Uh, in you know, nearly seven years, um, almost always five days a week doing this talk show. I think a lot of people have relied on your voice being uh, you know a steady presence. But I think what a lot of people don't always see is that you're a human being too. You're not just a talk show host. And so I want to ask you about some of the challenges of, of hosting this show. I, I mentioned to listeners at the top of um, the segment that you and I have been working together for about two and a half years. Uh, my first day on this show was March 2nd, 2020. And the first show we did was about a new virus that we didn't know much about called COVID-19, mm-hmm. and we didn't know how it was going to affect our state. And so I want you to talk about the, those really challenging moments of, of hosting this show, especially in the last um, kind of crazy two and a half years we've had where the news cycle has just been never ending. Yeah, it was challenging because, you know, you came on right before the pandemic, and I remember, you know, what it was like to host a talk show where every day our guests were in studio. They were sitting as close as you are to me right now. And then we had to literally, everyone went to their homes. Um, our company uh, gave us the right equipment to do our job safely, but it's still a live talk show. And I was sitting in Suffield. You were sitting where you live. Uh, our other producer down in the New Haven area, our tech director, thank goodness, Kat Pastor. We wouldn't have been able to do it without her uh, still manning our tech board uh, here in Hartford. But we were still having to connect with people and still learn the, the learning the technology like everybody else. Um, I had a, a special device called a Comrex that um, makes it sound like as if I were in studio like I am today, but it relies on a pretty fast internet uh, speed. And I found out that I needed to up my internet plan so that I could have the ability to continue um, to do the show uh, during the peak of the pandemic. And so there were those times you remember, and it always was when we had a high profile guest, like US Senator Chris Murphy was booked and literally everything sounded great. We're doing our sound check at 8.50 and then all of a sudden my internet dropped and I had to quickly then connect via my head, my earbuds to my phone on mm-hmm. Zoom to interview <laughs> Senator Chris Murphy. And all of our guests at that time were connecting via Zoom. And one thing our listeners may not know, like you and I are in a studio, we're looking at each other, we're talking to each other, we're noticing body language. But back then, because everyone's internet um, connection was different, we had everyone turn off their video to preserve bandwidth. And so I'm interviewing people. I'm not able to see them. They're not able to see me. And that can be challenging as well, especially when you're doing a live talk show. It has been fun, even though there have been those moments where my heart drops down into my stomach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another one was when uh, Governor Lamont would check in with us a few, every couple of months during the, the height of the pandemic. And it was one of those moments where my Comrex always dropped right before we went live. <laughs> so it was interesting. I, I mean, as, as producer, I'd love to hear how you felt during those moments. <laughs> yeah, I mean, w- we definitely had um, some very stressful technical difficulties in the early days of the pandemic. But for me, what was the, the most challenging is that we were learning about the pandemic and right. what we needed to do to prevent the spread of the coronavirus at the same pace as the public was. And I was thinking the other day that we did a lot of reporting during that time.
time on how schools were going mm-hmm. online. And you're a mother. Yep. And so you probably at the same pace as our the public we serve was dealing with online schooling, was dealing with, um, you know, precautions for the pandemic. So, you know, how do you balance that kind of like personal and and public <laughs> of doing this yeah. job? Yeah, it was hard. Uh, my, my daughter was on her device from school, I think, in the family room. My son was in his room on his device. And yeah, like I was thinking, what what happens if my daughter opens the door? Because <laughs> she's little, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm live on the radio. I also have two dogs, and I'd like I'm very proud to say they've never barked once uh, <laughs> while I was uh, doing the show uh, from home. So good dogs. <laughs> Can you talk about kind of the legacy? you're leaving behind with where we live um, because you're you've been a very unique and distinguished voice for Connecticut public you are the daughter of two immigrants you're Indian American and um, you've really shaped the conversations that we've had on where we live and have brought a really unique perspective Mm -hmm. to this well, thank you. Thank you for that question, Tess. You know, I think about my parents every day. They're no longer with us, but um, I saw how hard they worked. And they knew about my love of journalism back when I was in sixth grade. Um, so I wish that they could hear um, me as host of this show because this show has meant a lot to me. And um, it's a show that people have come to rely on. Uh, I know our listeners um, – who have listened from the very beginning. Um, What they hear on the show helps them learn more about our state. Um, I've learned a lot about our state, um, and it's been such an honor uh, to sit in this host chair. Uh, But, you know, my time at Connecticut Public isn't ending. I'm taking on this exciting new role as a vice president of community engagement. I hope to build on the relationships uh, that I um, have in our state uh, when I was a reporter and uh, as host of this talk show uh, to really strengthen how uh, this company uh, connects with different communities across our state because that's the point, right? Um, we want to become better at what we do. Uh, we want to hear from different people and different perspectives and have those stronger connections because we'll, we will become a stronger state when uh, we take time to listen and learn from each other. And so that's what I want to see continue at Connecticut Public for the next host of where we live, uh, to remember um, the stories matter and the people that live here matter, and to bring them on this show and, and to continue to do that. Any final words, Lucy, before you sign off for the last You time? made me cry, Tess. <laughs> but it has been a pleasure to work with you. Uh, When you host a live talk show, you can't do it yourself. You need to have a strong team. And I've had that with uh, Tess Terrible, senior producer, Sujatha Srinivasan, senior producer, Katie Pellico, producer, Kat Pastor, who I mentioned before, um, who was our technical director, and Katie Tolarski. We've made a lot of good radio, and I appreciate the time on this show. Lucy, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tess. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.